And now, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, a special hello goes out to the director of media for the Boston Bruins alumni, Mr. Mark Boland. Nice to see you, Marky. Welcome to the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast, the home of behind-the-scenes interviews, stories, and memories that celebrate the heritage of the great game of hockey. The Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast is hosted by Mark Willand. Welcome to Episode 20 of the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast. Today's guest on the PHA Podcast is Matt DiBiaz, the author of the book, The Art of the Dealers, the NHL's Greatest General Managers. The book is based on 17 hours of interviews with NHL players and general managers, both active and retired, like Lou Lamorello, Cliff Fletcher, Ray Shiro, Doug Wilson, Jim Rutherford, and David Poyle, who shared their insights and philosophies about what it takes to build, manage, and maintain great hockey teams. In our interview, we discuss great managerial legends like Sam Pollock, Emil Francis, Bill Torrey, Con Smythe, Harry Sinden, Glenn Sather, and more. Based on his rating system, Matt reveals what he determines to be the top five GMs of all time. The Art of the Dealers is available on Amazon.com. In addition to Matt, we welcome back the voice of the Boston Bruins alumni, our friend John Horrigan, as he interviews a pair of NHL pros, P.J. Stock and Al Iafredi at a recent NHL Pro-Am event in Boston. Please consider leaving a rating and review on iTunes. The link is in the show notes. You can also reach us directly at ProHockeyAlumni at gmail.com. Matt is an author who's written numerous hockey books. His most recent is called The Art of the Dealers, the NHL's greatest general managers. So, Matt, we appreciate you being on here. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you so much, Mark. Matt, tell me a little bit about yourself, uh, your background, your development years, I guess, learning uh, so much about the game of hockey. Well, uh, I work uh, for the National Archives at Philadelphia. I've done that for the past 27 years. Uh, I'm an archive specialist there. But uh, this, is not, this was not an official NARA project. This was a personal project that I did on my own, time, during my own free time. I have always loved sports history. Ever since I was 10 years old, I've always been involved you know, with sports history, not just hockey, but all, all the sports, you know, football, uh, basketball, baseball, as well as hockey. And um, uh, the book we're talking about, The Art of the Dealers, The NHL's Greatest General Managers, is my second book. It was released October last year. Uh, my first book, uh, Bench Bosses, the NHL's Coaching Elite, was released in October 2015, uh, and that dealt with the 50 greatest NHL hockey coaches of all time, as determined by me by, via a rating system, which I personally devised. And this book that we're talking about now, The Art of the Dealers, was a follow-up to that book. And th- but instead, this time, I focused on NHL general managers. And uh, this book is very unique because not just in hockey history, but in sports history in general. As far as I can determine, I know of no other author who has ever written a book where general managers of the four major sports, hockey, basketball, baseball, and football, have ever been rated and ranked using a metrical system. Yes, there have been biographies and autobiographies by, about you know, uh, sports general managers, hockey general managers, and all that, but no one has ever attempted to rate and rank 
the general managers of Resport. And so literally, this, my second book was truly a groundbreaking effort. And um, I got involved with this. It, it took me a year to write. Uh, it was based on a series of articles that I did for Inside Hockey, an online magazine, uh, which I had done some years back where I had written about uh, the, the 50 greatest general managers. And I was, it was 50 straight weeks I came out with these columns. So what I did was uh, I took those columns and basically augmented, beefed them up. Uh, and also for a, a one-year period, like a six-month period of time, I reached out to as many active and former NHL general managers that I could locate and interviewed them getting their personal insights. Um, men like, uh, you know, um, uh, 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 Lou Lamarillo cooperated with me. Um, Pierre Lacroix cooperated with me. Uh, David Poyle, Irving Grunman, um, Craig Patrick, George McPhee. Uh, I was able to talk to them. Uh, the late Brian Murray, um, literally almost, I believe, like a year before his death, I was able to talk to him. It was a very lovely interview. I talked to Jim Rutherford of the Pittsburgh Penguins. Uh, a, a good de- a Doug, a Doug Wilson at, um, at San Jose, uh, Dean Lombardi, uh, actually months before he got fired by the LA Kings, I was able to interview Dean Lombardi. Very great interview. Ray Shiro with the Devils. And I, was, I asked them questions, basically their managerial styles, uh, what, when they were drafting players, uh, what type of players they're on the lookout for, uh, when, what was their philosophy with tr- regards to making trades, you know, were they, you know, were they, were they very active traders? Were they very reluctant to make trades? Uh, I was able to deduce their managerial styles, philosophies. Also, what motivated them to draft certain immortal players? Like Craig Patrick told me a wonderfully funny story about how uh, Yaramir Yager uh, joined the Pittsburgh Penguins. Knocked me over with a feather. Pierre Lacroix was incredible because one, when he was um, general manager of the Avalanche, he was not really one for talking much with the press. So actually getting an interview with him was like striking gold. I mean, it was an it was incredible insights from Mr. Right. Lacroix. Well, it must have been a great experience for you talking with some of the game's all-time greats. I had the privilege of working uh, with Craig Patrick, actually, when I worked with with the Penguins. And Ooh, wow. uh, back in the, in the uh, glory days, or just, just past the glory days, I started there in 92, 93, and um, you know, was there through 97 or so. So I got a chance to spend uh, some time with Craig and get to know him a little bit. I consider him uh, one of the, the better GMs, both with his work in New York and Pittsburgh, to be sure. Yes. Um, so it must have been, you know, I admire the fact that you did this book. I think, as you said, it is groundbreaking. It's something that we all kind of talk about. I mean, the GMs are always the top of good conversation. It comes to deals and trades and coaching decisions, but I don't think anyone has ever taken the time to uh, put some value to all of it and, and rank them. So with that in mind, I was very enthused to talk to you uh, for this show. And I wanted to, um, well, first of all, I was going to ask you a general question, Matt. What type of what commonalities do all of the premier GMs have is there a common thread uh, that you uncovered that separates the great from the good oh yes there is heard this with all of the uh, men that I interviewed uh, the GMs that I interviewed is getting apps giving the freedom of expression to their subordinates uh, the scouts, uh, the assistant GMs, the personnel men and women, giving them freedom of expression, getting the full spectrum of opinions, uh, 
um, uh, and, and, and also uh, loving the arguments. They needed the arguments. Actually, they needed the conflicts to really get a sense of all the issues, get a sense of all the views about certain players, about certain you know, coaches and all that, uh, mixing it all together and then finding that consensus where the team can make move forward and all that. That was always a common theme, is that giving, giving your subordinates the room, the room and the power and the freedom to, you know, to really use their talents to the full and creating that atmosphere of, of loyalty, you know, reciprocal loyalty and dedication to the team. Always, that was a commonality with all those men, especially with Lou Lamarillo or with Sinden, uh, with, with Fletcher, uh, you know, Mr. Craig Patrick. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, that, that very uh, George McPhee. I interviewed George McPhee just shortly before the last NHL season. You know, and I asked him, you know, what what do you think Vegas was going to do? And he was actually rather coy about it. But who who knew what that Vegas was going <laughs> to shock the world? <laughs> that was one for the history books, as far as a general manager is concerned. Perhaps one of the great general managing feats of all time in sports. Uh, given that circumstance, and I know that was relatively, over the history of hockey, it was relatively generous expansion of uh, rules. However, to be able to pull a team together from scratch, zero players one day, pull a team together in short order, and to get that team to within uh, a hair of the winning a, a Stanley Cup is amazing. Um, yeah. And that's that's never... That's never that those circumstances have never uh, transpired before. When I look back, and I, you know, we we focus a lot, as I mentioned to you before, that era between '67 and '92. Yeah. Um, so I had a few names I was going to throw out at you as some of my favorites from that era. Okay. I'll tell you one thing about hockey. Then you know this, of course, but there was. More so than you may disagree with me, but more so than now, a great disparity between the top GMs and the lesser, as there was a great disparity between the great teams and the lesser teams. And those both went hand in hand, in my opinion. A lot of teams were under a lot of pressure uh, in the early days of expansion, a lot of new territories, a lot of new teams. So Colorado, Los Angeles, Kansas City, whatever. These GMs often became victimized by their circumstances, under pressure to fill the seats in the short term and susceptible to being, for lack of a better term, fleeced uh, over the long term. And that happened repeatedly with Oakland, uh, Vancouver, Colorado, etc. And your top GMs, whether it be Harry Sinden, Sammy Pollock, uh, Keith the Thief Allen, whomever were able to take advantage of those circumstances and retool, uh, even Bill Torrey with Pat LaFontaine, uh, were able to retool their franchise, taking advantage of those circumstances. But the thing is, uh, I mean, Torrey actually started off with the California Seals, and he saw how Sam Pollock most of, most of the time was always raiding California of its top draft choices. So when he took over as general manager of the Islanders, he was absolutely determined that one, there was not going to be any rush to make the Islanders a winner. He was going to draft very shrewdly, give those youngsters a chance to grow into their hockey uniforms, and then at the appropriate time, you know, when everything gelled together, then they were going to make their move, you know, in the NHL and become, you know, playoff contenders, uh, divisional champions, and then eventually, you know, Stanley Cup contenders and Stanley Cup champions. There was no rush. Torrey took his time. He built it up player by player trade by trade, 
step by step, inch by inch, and then finally, after seven, you know, finally in 1980, they won their first Stanley Cup and the first of four straight. And in my view, it was just it was that was one approach there because he had seen California being victimized. In fact, when the Islanders started out, Pollock tried to get done his pot ban. He tried to do the Islanders what he did with the Seals. He was going to dangle, oh, I got these beautiful players to offer you. Just let me have the draft rights to Potvin. And, and Tory said, absolutely not. He stuck to his guns, and, and beautifully so, because Dennis Potvin was the was a linchpin to that Islanders dynasty. Absolutely. And, I'll tell yeah. you, you know, Bill Tory. one thing that's under, underrated in the Bill Tory story is the job he did with the Seals. He actually... Uh, they were rated of 11 players after the 71-72 season. It was actually building up a good, strong foundation there, and it wasn't allowed to uh, finish the job. But as you noted, when he, this is where ownership is so important, and another subject we can talk about, but when he went to the Islanders, he was given the room to build a team slowly. Now, the first year, the Atlanta Flames were in a new market down south. They've got to kind of got come out of the gates a little bit stronger, and they had boom boom Jeffrey on as a coach they were very strong in goal and they they were a better team out of the gates than the Islanders but of course one you know it just is the slightest difference between in 1973 draft the Islanders end up with Dennis Potvin a Hall of Famer one of the great players of all time the Flames end up with a heck of a player too in Tom Lysiak but obviously not that that much not not a Hall of Famer so um what Bill Torrey did was amazing, but again, what Cliff Fletcher did was excellent as well, but the ownership, the expectations, and the demands were, were different for both. Yes. Also, there's a very major difference. Very quickly, after that inaugural season, the Islanders got uh, Al Arbor, who was, of course, one of the all-time greats as a coach, whereas in the Atlanta Flames, they never had the, a coach at the same caliber as Al Arbor. It wasn't until they moved to Calgary and they got Badger Bob Johnson that they really got that super top-notch coaching that they really needed to compete for, at the Stanley Cup level and get these talents to play at Stanley Cup potential there. So that was one reason why the Atlanta Flames, yeah, they had more playoff appearances during the 70s than the Islanders, but they didn't go as far as the Islanders because they had some young talents, but they never had the proper coaching for those young talents that could take those kids, you know, help them grow and then take it to the next level. And it's only when they moved to Calgary and they got Badger Bob Johnson that Cliff Fletcher was able to make the Flames into, you know, uh, Stanley Cup finalists and eventually in 1989 Stanley Cup champions. Right. Boy, you just mentioned that and it reminds me how difficult it is to win a Stanley Cup when you think back at the that era that we're talking about, how few teams actually won. And I had this conversation with a, a former Bruins player who played in the 70s and 80s. I said, you know, if you remember back in those days, the only team that won a cup in, in your basic entire career were the Flyers, the Bruins, Canadians, Islanders, and Oilers for about 15 years. Um, mm-hmm. And speaking of the Oilers and speaking of something you meant before, you, you talked about before about the delegation and um, working with your staff, Glenn Sather would certainly be a great example of that because their drafts in the 1980s were unbelievable, I mean, historic. And Barry Frazier, the director of player personnel, I recall that being his title. Um, I recall him getting a lot of a lot of leeway on the other end. Johnny Muckler eventually um, on on the coaching end, but Glenn seemed to be a, a person who's. Uh, didn't let his ego or you know personal desires get in the way of uh, of building a franchise. He had he surrounded himself with very very good people. 
Yeah, he did. But the thing about Sather was, unfortunately, I wasn't able to interview Sather for this book. I did try, but I'm afraid he kind of, uh, breaking through the range of Madison Square Garden's Byzantine office structure is a very tough and difficult task. And, um, <laughs> and Slats really was not very cooperative. Um, I only had a brief conversation with him, and it actually ended rather badly. The thing about, you mentioned about the Oilers drafting, um, actually, his draft record with the Oilers was not as good as one would suspect. I mean, when the Oilers joined the NHL, there was a, like a four, three or four-year window where the Oilers drafted very, very well. Yes. You know, they got Coffey, they got Fuhrer, they got Yari Curry, but after Yari Curry, there was this, I talk about this in my book, there was this long drought where the guys they were drafting simply just were not ending up with the Oilers. They weren't doing making any type of splash with the team. I mean, what's in the 90s? I think they got Miroslav Satan and a, one or two other guys, but they, they got rid of them. They never played a single minute for the Oilers. So there was this long draft, and I think that went a long way towards the decline and fall of the Oilers once the 1990s began. I mean, once it could... You know, by the late 80s, they started trading away some of their stars. They got rid of Coffey first, then they got rid of Gretzky, then they traded away Messier and the others because they had to pay the bills. So they were selling these guys off for cash and all of that. And that's why, you know, after 1990, the Oilers went into decline and fall. And and even during the 90s, I mean, Sather was drafting very poor, and it's only when he left Edmonton and went, took the New York Rangers job that he got back his um, – as magic touch for drafting good players because he really he slowly built up the Rangers, you know, player by player, and he was able to get those guys who eventually competed for the Stanley Cup in 2014. But there was there was a, dr a drought period uh, from the mid 80s all the way up till Sather departed Edmonton in 2000. There, but um, Hitching, but also he was able to sustain because he made some very good trades. He was able to get Craig McTavish from the Bruins. He got uh, Murphy and Ranford, uh, and, and that trade had helped out in the 1990 Stanley Cup run there. Um, you, know, he, he, you know, he had very good he, – he, John Muckler, you know, sang his praises. I was able to interview John Muckler, and he, get, you know, he, he really helped out Muckler with his development as a coach, gave John the freedom, you know, to, 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 run, to run the team and all that. And and all that, and also creating that atmosphere of culture with the Edmonton Oilers. There, I mean, if you gave it your all for the team, you know, Slats always had your back. But if you did anything to embarrass the team, uh, Slats was going to crack that whip on you. Absolutely. Now, one guy here locally, and uh, that I think is somewhat underappreciated, is Harry Sinden. And I think back at the. When you look at the economics of the team, I don't know what, you know, you talk to a lot of the guys from that area. I, I do a lot of work with the Bruins alumni. I talk with a lot of guys, you know, Mike Krusenisky recently and Tom Ferguson. Uh, they went in and, there and they asked for raises, you know, 10000 15000 They got shipped out of town. Um, but Harry, an interesting career. He made some of the greatest deals in, in hockey history. Rick Middleton for Ken Hodge. Uh, Cam Neely trade was unbelievable. Trading uh, Ron Graham to the LA Kings, we talked about again taking advantage of teams. You're trading uh, Ron Graham to the LA Kings, getting number one pick back, and turning that into Ray Bork. Just some ingenious 
stuff under, uh, again, I don't know exactly what type of financial circumstances that he had to uh, work with at the time, but uh, looking back at the career of Harry Sinden in particular, uh, how, do you, uh, how do you look at him? Harry Sinden, for a long time, until, uh, for a long time, was ranked among the top five, uh, according to my rating system. When my book came out, he was ranked number six, and I believe, it's, uh, if I recheck my calculations, he's still the sixth uh, uh, greatest GM of all time. But for a time, he was top five material. His apex was uh, at the end of the 93-94 season when he, was, he ranked fourth on the all-time list and all that. But now he, he's dropped two steps in rank. But the amazing thing about Sinden was that even though he was, he, he was relatively tight with the Bucks, he wasn't one for shelling out the, uh, shelling out the, uh, the dollars and all that, he was able to con- – the Boston Bruins always made the playoffs – and even though he never managed a Stanley Cup winner, he had numerous Stanley Cup Finals appearances, 74, 77, 78, 88, 90. They're, the Bruins were always competitive, always in the mix. And, you know, and at the same time, not only was it, not so much a great drafter of players, but as you said before, he was one of the greatest stealers when it came to making trade. He and, and Fletcher were the absolute uh, uh, foxes of all time when it came to raiding other teams' talent and all that. He was a genius at that, at making the killer trade. And that, that was his greatest strong point. Um, but for Harry, it was just, again, he gave his staff leeway. He trusted in his scouts. He had a solid cadre of subordinates who were there for, you know, for centuries with him. Right. And another thing about Harry Sinner is that he knew how to find coaching talent. He gave Don Cherry his NHL coaching chance, gave him a chance. And, Don, and Grace was for five years was was one of the finest in all the business. Uh, Jerry Cheevers, he got great work out great work out of Jerry Cheevers for a brief time. Mike Milbury uh, took him to the finals in 1990. Uh, Brian Sutter, I mean Brian Sutter told me he, and, he it was a great thrill working for Harry Sinden. I interviewed Brian Sutter for this book, and he sang Harry Sinden's praises praises and all that. So. One of Sinden's great strengths was uh, making trades and also giving, uh, finding great coaching talent and uh, launching these men. Absolutely. He knew when to hire. And even though it seemed perplexing at the time, in a lot of, time, a lot of occurrences, he knew when to let, let a coach go, uh, whether it be Robbie Fatorik, Steve Casper, uh, Rick Bonus, uh, or any any coach, uh, even Jerry yeah. Cheever's guys who had success for, uh, or some didn't, but for the most part, they, as you noted, they had some significant success with almost every coach that he hired, and he always he pulled the plug before it became too late, uh, even with, with even with Terry O'Reilly who did well, and um, so yeah, it, it, just an interesting guy. They were always one. You know, if you talk to the players in that era. They always lament that they were. They always figured they were one player away, one investment at, at the trading deadline away from uh, winning a Stanley Cup. However, with that in mind, as you noted, uh, Harry uh, was just uh, one of the one of the greatest of all time. Another one I wanted to ask you about is uh, someone you mentioned earlier, Matt, is uh, Craig Patrick, and you mentioned specifically again sometimes luck. And circumstance play. Now, look at the Penguins, for example. Two great players of that generation, Lemieux and Yarger. In order to get one, Lemieux, you had to have a race to the bottom of the of the of the, of the league. And 
uh, hey, that's a move that paid off. Even to this day, is still paying off for, for Pittsburgh and getting Lemieux number one overall. Yarmy Yarger was a different circumstance in that the Penguins had a heck of a team in 89-90, but the Patrick division was loaded and they somehow missed the playoffs. But they still have one of the you know better teams in the league. They were certainly a first division team. And now they have an opportunity to draft, I believe, fifth overall that year. Yeah. And they used that choice uh, extremely wisely in a loaded draft, which you're almost, you, you could throw a dart and get a, a good player. Uh, they probably got the best of the bunch in uh, Yarmir Yager. Tell me a little bit about that. What, were your, what are your insights about that? When I interviewed Craig Patrick, that was a very emotional interview because he, there were times when he was like very funny and there were times when he was incredibly sad. I mean, you saw, you, when I interviewed him, he ran the full gamut of his emotions there. And when he told me the Yager, how they acquired Yager, it's incredible because basically Yaramir Yager snookered the, the fur teams that were ahead of uh, Pittsburgh in the 90, uh, was it the 89 or the 90 draft? I think it was the 90 draft. Yeah. Um, they all had a shot, and the thing is, they all took a pass at Yager, and Craig Patrick didn't understand why, and when he came up, naturally he plucked him, and what happened was that, this, when those four teams talked to Yager, asked him, you know, how quickly can you come to, to, come to North America, because, uh, you know, he was still playing in, in the Czech Republic, you know, how quickly can you come, and Yager said, well, I still want to play a one or two, uh, two or three more years in Czech before I come over. But when Pittsburgh reached out to him, he said, my bags are packed and I'll fly, I can fly immediately. I'll fly overnight to Pittsburgh. <laughs> what happened was that this, Yager wanted to play with Super Mario in the worst possible way. He did not want to play with any other team. So basically what he did was he snookered the Flyers and he snookered those other three teams that were ahead of Pittsburgh and basically fed him a line and when Pittsburgh said, "We, you know, will you play for us?" I'm right. I'm right there. <laughs> so it wasn't even Craig Patrick. It was Yager. He just snookered the opposition there because he knew what Super Mario was, and he wanted to be right there with them. And he got his wish. Well, that's a great story that I, I had never heard that. So that's uh, yeah. that's very interesting. Yeah. Doing another guy that I, uh, again we appreciate the the, the time we're talking, uh, of course, with uh, Matt DiBiase, and we're talking about his most recent. Hockey book, the art, the dealers, the NHL's greatest general managers, and Jimmy Devolano had some of the most had 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 a, a stretch that was just awesome. Drafting for Detroit, uh, he learned uh, from the best in Bill Torrey. It's got to be one of the great hockey minds of all time. I, I understand there, there there's. Some you know some ups and downs and things like that, but he did some amazing things as a general manager and as an assistant GM. Jim, I'll tell you this: I want to give a shout out to Jimmy Devolano because if without him, I don't think this book would have would have made it. Because Jimmy Devolano, uh, as well as myself, is a member of the Society of International Hockey Researchers. So when I was doing the research for this book, I I re- I was able to email him and talk to him personally, and he was. Oh, very, very helpful. Not just talking about his own magnificent career. He talked. He gave me beautiful insights into Bill Torrey because I wasn't able to interview Bill Torrey. I was able to talk to him, but we never were able to get together for an interview. So he was able to tell me things about Bill Torrey that I couldn't get from Mr. Torrey himself. 
because he was literally, he was Bill Torrey's deputy. He was right there, present at the creation of the Islanders. And also, Devilano was there when the St. Louis Blues began, when Scotty Bowman was not just the head coach, he was also the GM there as well. Right. So he talked about the early days with the St. Louis Blues when they made three straight uh, Stanley Cup Finals appearances. You know, he talked about those great years, those learning experiences when he was working with the Islanders. He talked about his own magnificent experience, you know, how he built the Red Wings from absolutely nothing to, and it made them from 1991 up to 2009, one of the, the most dominant franchise in the NHL uh, during that time period. He talked about, you know, developing Neil Smith, you know, and also Jim Devolano helped me get in contact with Dean Lombardi, with Doug Wilson, uh, Neil Smith, you know, all those guys. I was able to get interviews that I couldn't have gotten through any other means you know, through his wonderful help. And I absolutely owe a debt of gratitude to Jimmy D for all, for his kindness and his generosity. I really, from the bottom of my heart. And Jimmy D was incredible. I mean, his dedication to the Red Wings. I mean, he, he, he 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, he was doing everything he could to make the Detroit Red Wings an NHL power. And he did it. It came, it took time. There were rough spots. I mean, for a time, he wasn't even amongst my top 50, according to my rating system. But at the end there, when they finally won in 97, you know, they just, he, yeah, he cracked the barrier and it finished up. I mean, technically in my book, I've got him ranked 43rd of all time. But his, his influence and his genius went beyond numbers there. And his, just his insights, you know, his ability to find great coaching talent, uh, playing talent, you know, he talked about the development of Steve Eisenman because I wanted, I wasn't able to interview Steve Eisenman, who's also one of my 50 and featured in my book. Uh, but he talked about after Steve, you know, had retired as a player, he wanted to get into management, and he said, me, uh, Dave Holland, uh, basically, uh, he said he sat in with us, and whenever he asked a question, we gave him an answer. This is why it's done. This is how we do it. He literally was learning from two of the greatest uh, managerial geniuses in NHL history, and Jimmy D and Dave Holland, and and Eiserman has now become a great general manager in his own right, and he's moving up those charts. Absolutely is. Um, I want to ask you about another GM who I always liked a lot and is a little bit uh, beneath the radar screen. I'd like to, to get your thoughts on David Poyle. Uh, his career and where you rank him among the elite GMs. Well, when the book came out, I ranked him at 26, but uh, I, I, I have to recheck my thing. He's moved, he moved up the charts because Nashville had a very great season uh, last season. So he has moved up now. He's definitely amongst the top 20. I believe in amongst the top 25. I have to recheck my list, but he's definitely moved up with, that, uh, with, uh, with their Stanley Cup Finals appearances and then their divisional title. He's advanced in leaps and bounds. Uh, basically, David Poyle, I mean, you know, his father, Bud Poyle, uh, it taught, taught him so many things. He worked, uh, you know, I forget, I think he was Cliff, yeah, he was Cliff Fletcher. I believe he was Cliff Fletcher's deputy. I believe he was. And, you know, he, right. he, learned, at the, he learned the needs of both of those men. And then when he took over with the Caps, his trade, that 1982 trade where he got Langway from the Canadians, you know, uh, that was a killer. Right then and there, that gave the Caps instant credibility. They became from bottom dwellers to, you know, winners and playoff contenders. Uh, I mean, the uh, uh, season before last, when he got P.K. Subban from Montreal, again, one of the greatest steals in NHL uh, history of NHL trades. I mean, 
Nashville, again, you know, became Stanley Cup finalists while Montreal has gone straight down the tubes. Right. And, and it just, and the fact that, you know, he went from Washington to Nashville and he took a team in a, in a small market, built it from absolute scratch, draft pick by draft pick, took his time, let, let those youngsters grow into their uniforms, and eventually they became winners. Um, it, 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 but the reason why he doesn't rank higher is that he, had, he was cursed with very poor playoff luck. In my book, I have this chapter. I have this term which I invented in my first book. In my first book, I had this term called a heartbreak coach. That's a coach who can lead his team to the uh, to the playoffs, but he can't reach the Stanley Cup Finals. Right. Well, in this ch- in my in my second book here, I have this chapter called Heartbreak Managers. It's the same thing: a general manager who can uh, manage a team to a playoffs, but they can't make it to the Stanley Cup Finals. And for like twenty two or twenty three straight, twenty three times, Poyle's teams made the playoffs, but they couldn't make the finals. And then finally. In 2016, no, I mean 2017, they made their their first Stanley Cup Finals uh, uh, appearance. On Saturday, they lost to the Penguins, but still, he finally broke his heartbreak managing streak. And but and that's one reason why he doesn't rank higher than others, you know, because that that failure to reach the Stanley Cup Finals, let alone winning a Stanley Cup and all that. Right. It is, boy, as we discussed before, it is so difficult. When you think back at Philadelphia sports, for example, and 1975, the the Flyers are celebrating a a Stanley Cup, and you would say to yourself, here it is 44 years later, 43, 44, and still nothing. It's very difficult. I'm I'm saying saying the, the obvious, but... You know, these yeah. guys can be great. As you said, you have like, uh, you can have some heartbreak. And one last guy I want to mention to you and get your thoughts on is somebody I worked yeah. with for, for several years in Hartford who falls into that heartbreak category is uh, the cat, Emil Francis. Had a talk with uh, your friend George Grimm, who wrote that recent book on the Emil Francis era. And um, I want to get your thoughts on where he ranks. Now, I look back at Emil as a guy who really could build, take a a ramshackled franchise and build it to a certain point, get it back to respectability. I wanted to get your thoughts on the cat. Uh, when my book came out, I had Emil Francis ranked at the 47th spot, but I believe now uh, he's moved down because Eiserman has just surpassed him. So I believe he's like at the 48th or 49th spot. The problem was, the reason why he ranked so low is that, you know, he, he was always taking on rebuilding projects, first with the New York Rangers. It took time to build up the Rangers till finally they became uh, uh, playoff con- winners, playoff contenders, and all that. And then with the St. Louis Blues, that was a struggle because not only was he struggling to rebuild the team, he was struggling to keep the franchise in St. Louis because they were teetering on the edge of bankruptcy. Right. And then he went to Hartford, and that took a while to, you know, to get the Hartford Whalers turned around. So... Unfortunately, with my writing system, when you're doing rebuilding projects, there are those lean periods that can serve as drag to your co- your managerial value, as it were. Okay, you know, it's kind, of, it's kind of like debits. It's a plus-minus system. Like if you have like a losing season, or if you fail to make the playoffs, then certain points are deducted there. Or if you finish in last place in your division, certain points are deducted. Right. And there were times when Emil Francis's teams, you know, in St. Louis and the Rangers. There were some, you know, rough moments there, but his genius was that you know, again he rebuilt those teams. They were before he came, they were nothing. 
Right. They were absolutely nothing. They were bottom dwellers. And yet, through sheer hard work, grit, his, his managerial and coaching genius, he turned those guys into winners. And for a time, he, he was a manager. He was like the very first heartbreak manager. He had five straight playoff appearances before finally in 72, he had his only Stanley Cup Finals appearance. And sadly, they lost to the Bruins in six games in 72. So it took him some time. And that was the only time he ever reached the Stanley Cup Finals. And, and, and that was it. But I, I, never, I didn't interview him for this managerial book, but I know George did. I mean, I, I wish someone would write a definitive biography. I wish Raymond Francis would write his memoirs because the, the genius of the man, even, even in his elder years, I mean, the absolute wisdom and insight. I mean, I actually interviewed him like a long time ago, about uh, 11, 10 years ago at his West Palm Beach home. Beautiful guy. I mean, just crystal clear. It's like looking through the window, looking glass of ancient NHL history. And the man was brilliant. And um, a, 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 not only a great manager, but a great coach. He could do it both and do it brilliantly. Yeah, he sure could, and a heck of a nice guy. I had the good fortune, and I literally worked in the, in the office next to him and the assistant GM at the time, Bob Crocker, and what a storyteller and an encyclopedic knowledge of uh, hockey. You no, know, he came up, it was tough for him. He might have been the seventh best goaltender in hockey at one time, but there was a six-team league, so uh, he had a lot of great stories about his years uh, through the Myers, yeah. but uh, just a, a wonderful human being for whom I have uh, uh, great memories and great uh, great respect, to be sure. I felt fortunate to spend that time with him. Um, yeah. So now, Matt, we... Uh, so we're not going to get into a lot of your your system. We're going to let the the, uh, the fans read about, about that in the book or your metrics. Uh, love the work you've put into this. And we... To uh, conclude our conversation, I was wondering if you wouldn't mind, uh, you know, maybe listing your top five GMs of all time. I mean, uh, okay, uh, the, the ones I mentioned in the book, who are the top five men? Sure. Okay. Number one is the late Sam Pollock. Um, I mean, on only 14 seasons, he was able to get to the, uh, win all those Stanley Cups with the Montreal Canadiens, even though he's only there for 14 years. Uh, then you've got Trader Jack Adams, who literally built the Detroit Red Wings from absolutely nothing for 35 seasons. He's number two. The late Frank Selkie, who uh, was Sam Pollock's predecessor as general manager of the Montreal Canadiens. He's ranked number third. Number three. Then you've got Ken Holland uh, with the Detroit Red Wings. He is presently the greatest active uh, uh, NHL GM, according to my rating system. And then number five is the late Con Smythe, who again uh, made the Toronto Maple he created Leafs Nation, made them the flag for a time the flagship franchise of the NHL, uh, you know, from 1927 to 1957. All its its uh, history, its tradition, he created it and and maintained it. Those are my top five in the, in the eyes of my rating system, as as seen in my book. Well, you can't argue with those five. Of course, you can. The, the, the reason the book is interesting is because you're going to. Everyone's going to argue with it, but uh, that's a great. You can't argue with with the five who were there. Uh, certainly, some of the pillars in the history of hockey, and quite a tribute to a guy like Ken Holland uh, to be in that type of company. But for yourself, Matt, we definitely appreciate the time and your insights. I want to ask you: Do you have any other? Now that you've uh, covered the coaches 
and the general managers. Uh, anything else uh, in the future as far as the book writing is concerned? Well, actually, I'm not going to be, I'm diversifying from hockey right now. Right now, I am presently working on a book about the 50 greatest college football head coaches of all time. Uh, again, as determined by me using a rating system I personally devised. Um, I'm presently writing it, and if all goes according to plan, uh, it should be released uh, this, time, this time next year. Uh, it should be released. And then... After that, I've got projects for, I want to do like the greatest um, NBA head coaches of all time, uh, then the greatest NFL head coaches of all time, and then Major League Baseball, and then if I'm still alive, you know, 10, 11 <laughs> years from now, I want to do college basketball. So I am diversifying my, uh, expanding my interest in other sports there. So uh, again, I'm not so, solely pigeonholed into hockey. I, I'm, as I said before, I am a sports historian, uh, covering as, as wide a range as possible. Well, you're a renaissance man when it comes to these these ratings, and we appreciate your ambition. Uh, in the short term here, these the uh, hockey books are extremely interesting, and again, uh, for our fans. Probably the best, easiest way to uh, locate them is at uh, Amazon.com. Um, yep. So, we, again, appreciate the insight. Cre clearly did your homework. Uh, definitely had to be a great experience talking to some great professionals. And we appreciate the fact you took uh, some time to talk with us tonight. And uh, we'll keep an eye out open for your next uh, non-hockey ventures. Thank you so much, Mark. It's an honor and privilege to, speak, uh, to be interviewed by you. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed the interview with Matt DiBiaz. And now we're going to turn the microphone over to the voice of the Boston Bruins alumni, John Horgan, who at a recent charity alumni event had a chance to sit down and talk to two former Bruins, P.J. Stock and Al Iafredi. Boston Bruins Alumni TV, John Horgan, joined by P.J. Stock, a fan favorite here for the Boston Bruins. Seven years, the NHL, over 500 career penalty minutes. P.J., thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. You left out my goal total, though. <laughs> you total? Five. Five total goals, that's right. Thank you. But either way, that wasn't your job. Your job was to be a regulator and an enforcer and just to, to have your teammates back. I was a misused offensive player, <laughs> but uh, that was a great, great career, great time, great experience all around the world. Let's start from the beginning. Out of Victoriaville, I was amazed at your stats. Over two years, 818 penalty minutes, man, before you came into the league. How did you do that? Uh, well... You, know, you weren't at fault, right? If it, yeah, weren't, it, for the fight, if it weren't for the fights, you would have won the Lady Bing Award. Yeah, it was... Uh, you know what? It was actually fun. That's kind of where it all pretty much started. The whole... I played... Uh, I was a fence back in junior, and I I like to try and make big hits. And I'd make one big hit, and then someone wanted to beat you up and then make another big hit and that's kind of how the whole thing started and uh, that was the I got uh, a little bit better at it, at it every time I did it and then somehow it led to an opportunity to play in the NHL which uh, was a dream come true and I saw that after that you went to St. Francis yes, this season yes, yes. So, so you couldn't do your job there at the collegiate level no no well it was never really a job it was just the way I played that kind of led to those uh, moments of uh, 
Well, we're misunderstandings. You're misunderstandings. Thank okay. you. Okay. So, so now you you matriculated into the National Hockey League, into the Rangers organization. Um, you were a fan favorite, still all time, with the old Hartford Wolf Pack in the AHL. Uh, over 700 penalty minutes in three seasons. Talk about your experience there. Bringing up a lot of the penalty minutes. Could get a lot of penalty minutes. Um, that was actually that was my uh, some of my favorite times. Uh, obviously, the time in Boston was spectacular. But when I started off the Hartford Wolf Pack, I never thought I'd make the American Hockey League. And uh, Lo and behold, after my first training camp with the Rangers, I get sent down to Hartford. I, I make Hartford, and, and the, everything just worked out in Hartford so beautifully. It just my first time playing pro, first experience, everything about it. Uh, the guys to eventually, we had three years up and down with the Rangers, but uh, my last year with the Rangers organization, we won the Calder Cup, which is there's something about winning that just brings sure. your group so close together and it was uh, the fans were great they were really excited about getting a new team from the Whalers to the Wolfpack and it was just it was a great environment to play hockey it was my first experience at the pro level and it was uh, it was awesome great then you go you play three seasons parts of three seasons with yeah. the New York Rangers joining yeah. that storied franchise and Gretzky's not a bad guy to play with too not a bad way to start the three years that are up, up and down. Yep. And then from there, you, you move on to um, the Philadelphia Flyers. Canadians, I signed with the Canadians, okay, yes, and Canadians, then traded sorry. to the Flyers that same year. And then uh, it was, uh, you know, I had an opportunity. I was under shift free agent. Who did you sign with? Montreal was one of the teams on the How do you be a boy from Montreal? Yep. Didn't work out uh, as well as we had hoped. But, uh, again, everything happens for kind of a reason, I guess. And I got traded to Philadelphia where I can't. I actually learned how to do my role a little bit differently there, the role that I eventually would do in, in Boston. I learned a lot. I had some good role models in Philly who played that role. You know, Rick Tockett, not necessarily that role, but this, the smarts and stuff, Rick, Kevin Stevens, uh, Keith Primo, they were a team that had that mentality and uh, helped me develop into, or I guess, stay more consistently in the NHL. And pick your spots. Yeah, all, all that stuff, all that stuff. Well, it's not just, hey, someone wants to, there's reasoning and all that, so I learned a lot. Absolutely, and timing during the game yep. to, if, if, to swing momentum. So then you come to the Bruins and you, you make an instant impact. Um, the, the two and a half seasons that you were here, fan favorite, um, you took on, it was truly David versus Goliath, some of the Herculean bouts you had, and instantly the garden uh, you know, were drawn to you. It was, uh, it's my favorite moments of my, I, I don't know how to really explain it to people, just being in those moments, uh, the fans, and uh, I just, it was, it, I was really lucky because when teams have success, they find other storylines, and we couldn't talk about Joe Thorpe every night because Joe Thorpe was one of the best players in the league, you know, Bill Guerin, Mario Lapointe, you know, on nights where we're winning, they find other stories, and I was one of those other stories in the fourth line, it's not often that fourth line gets a little bit of love, but uh, that's because our team was doing so well and uh, it just led to uh, success, um, our team success and then a whole bunch of individual successes and I got to share that. And a lot of guys, like you said, you developed a reputation, um, obviously some of the legendary bouts that are still on YouTube, it's the Stephen Pete one obviously sticks out, yeah. but you, there are guys who would challenge you um, because of who you were. And, uh, I can take your stock. Even and again, you were giving away several inches. And in well, because they could stocks. take me, and they did take me, and they took me a lot. Oh, <laughs> it was tough. It was, uh, it was, it was awesome. It was uh, fun to be. I, I under, that's where I understood. You know, hey, if I want to stay in the NHL, this is something that I have to do. Play with a certain um, intensity, and, and that's sometimes part of the role. And I think there's not a the way everything fell into place in Boston. It's hard to. Ex 
and I don't encourage violence at all. But sure. it was just it was that time of the game. It was it was it was involved. It was part of it. Uh, there was a meaning for it. There was a reason for it, and the fans really got it as well. So it was it was a great moment in my life. And when guys leave the league with that role, some have had a very, very difficult yes. time and lost their lives in some instances. Others have thrived, and you've thrived um, being on Hockey Night in Canada, having your own radio show, your own TV, TV show. You know, people are drawn to the personality, obviously, and you're having fun with that, and you're very articulate, um, and I can understand the words because all you still have your teeth here. So. Yeah, there are some of them. <laughs> so uh, talk about that experience just as a, a commentator, both on uh, national television and uh, your radio show. Just something that kind of uh, felt, you know, I, I was hurt 2005, had surgery on my I was done. I was actually funny story. I was actually in a bar one night, and the guy's like, "Hey, do you want to come do a radio show for us?" And I'm like, "Well, if you pay for my drinks, that's how it started." <laughs> so, uh, and then more or less went to uh, start off with a little bit of radio, and it just kind of escalated into uh, being on national television, calling hockey, which is uh, again, I it's, uh, played it. Uh, got to play with Wayne Gretzky. Got to have great moments with the Canadians, the Bruins, Flyers, Rangers, some original six teams there. And then got to be on our up in Canada, our hockey in Canada, which is kind of like the, another cherry on top. So it's it's been a pretty good ride. Great. And finally, you're bilingual. Can you say in French uh, to the Hartford fans and to the Boston Bruins fans, uh, thanks for the memories, and we'll see you down the road. That much in French? Yeah. I can say bonjour à tout le monde. Je vous souhaite des des bonnes choses à tout le monde à Hartford, puis à Boston, puis merci pour tous mes matins à Dumbleville. Merci. Great. PJ Stock. John Horgan, Boston Bruins Alumni TV, joined by Al Iafredi, 15-year NHL veteran. He played with the Toronto Maple Leafs, Washington Capitals, Boston Bruins, San Jose Sharks. 19 surgeries over his 15-year career. A member of the 1984 U.S. Olympic hockey team, four-time NHL All-Star, three times he won the hardest shot competition with a slap shot on a wooden stick of over 105 miles per hour, and he won the NHL's fastest skater. So Al, thanks for joining us on Boston Bruins Alumni TV. Oh, my pleasure. It's always great to be back in Boston. Love it here. So let's talk about uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs you broke in. You had a coach, John Brophy. Uh, I've heard all sorts of stories with him, but playing in the old Maple Leaf Gardens, a kid out of Livonia, Michigan, uh, north of Detroit. How was it playing with the Toronto Maple Leafs back in those days in the 80s? Uh, it was awesome. You know, I was always a student of the game, loved hockey, was not necessarily like a big fan of any one team. I just loved the sport and I had my favorite players on every team, you know, Boris Salming, Guy Lafleur, those guys in that era when I was a young kid, you know, like a young teenager. Um, loved those players and dreamt of being a hockey player. That's really all I thought about, you know. Um, they'd ask you what you wanted to be when you grow up. I was like a hockey player. The teachers look at you like you're crazy, especially back then being in the States. You know, it wasn't, uh, there wasn't a lot of Americans in the NHL, you know, and then the Miracle on Ice happened and that kind of opened up the whole world, you know, to USA Hockey, and that's kind of when USA Hockey was born and uh, turned into the, you know, machine that it is now. And um, But being drafted as a Maple Leaf, you know, looking back, at the time you get drafted, you know, you're, you're thinking you've reached the pinnacle and, you know, you're a pro, and then you realize once you're a pro, it's getting drafted is one thing, and then staying there and being a, a pro player for 15 years and, you know, succeeding and helping your team and becoming a great player you know is a whole different story it's uh but being a hockey player and playing on a pro team in canada you know the only thing i can think of that would rival it would be 
you know, I was lucky. I was also a Boston Bruin. So, you know, being a Boston Bruin is the closest thing to being a pro hockey player in Canada. You know, I try to give the analogy in Canada, being a pro hockey player is like the NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, and NASCAR combined times 10. Wow. Wow. That's in a nutshell what it's like to be a pro in Canada. You mentioned about U.S. hockey. You were a member of the 1984 U.S. Olympic hockey team um, that played in Sarajevo in the former Yugoslavia. And you came to the Leafs at such a young age, at age 18, and like you said, you got drafted. Um, but what was that experience like playing internationally against the Russians? Oh man, it was unbelievable. It's, uh, you go from watching, you know, being a Bantam hockey player, watching the U.S. Uh, win the gold medal against Finland and you know obviously beating the Russians the game before that to thinking about doing it and then all of a sudden you know Lou Lamarillo and Lou Vero tell you that you know you made the team and it's it's kind of surreal and the one thing I wish I would have been a little older because I was 17 when I played in the Olympics and you know I think the, the you know, the mental capacity I had at that time, I was more in awe than, I think, uh, performing. I was kind of more, couldn't believe I was there rather than, you know, playing. I wish I would have been more experienced at the time, but it is what it is. Sure. Then after you played with the Leafs, moving on, you moved on to the Washington Capitals. Uh, you had three 20-plus goals per season, which is unbelievable nowadays in the NHL for a defenseman. But you played with some really great defensemen of the Washington Capitals. Talk oh, about that. Yeah, I mean, I played, fortunate, I played with, uh, you know, Rod Langway, Kevin Hatcher, Kelly Johansson, um, Sylvain Cote, Mike Lawler, great defenseman, and then, you know, I came to Boston and played with a great defenseman here, Ray Bork, obviously, arguably the greatest defenseman ever, him in number four. Um, Donnie Sweeney, David Shaw, Glenn Wesley, you know, we had a, we had a strong team here, and, um, you know, very fortunate to, to get to play with those guys. Sure, and then you finished your career with the San Jose Sharks, and, and for you to, to persevere after 19 different surgeries is truly amazing that you're even playing NHL alumni hockey today. Yeah, it's, uh, the medical advances are, are pretty amazing. You know, I've fortunately always had great doctors, and I was always, uh, I was always pretty, I think I would, the teams weren't always really happy with me because I was, it was never for me, oh, it's just a surgery. I was like, well, I want to talk to this surgeon. I want to talk to that surgeon. I want to talk to that surgeon and kind of research what's going on because, you know, it wasn't like I had, you know, little injuries that were, well, it's bothering me and, you know, I can play. If I, like these were, you know, you know, you blow your back out and rupture a disc and, you know, crack a part of your vertebrae. It's not like you can sit up, sit up straight or stand straight. So, or, you know, when you, tear three of the four major ligaments in your knee at, in one shot, you know, they're pretty, they're pretty big injuries where, you know, you go from being able to take the puck and skate and defend and do whatever you want to, you know, not being able to tie your shoe. It's, uh, the rehab is, because uh, knee injuries are the worst, you know, because back surgery, it's more of an instant relief after the surgery because you have a, a disc that's bulging out against you know your nerves from your spine and there's nothing you can do and then when they relieve that pressure and remove that disc or that portion of the disc it's like instant relief 
knee surgery is a whole different deal where you have the, the trauma of the big injury and then okay I gotta have surgery and that's a whole another major trauma you know because they're putting screws in and grafting ligaments from other parts of your body so it's uh you know and then you rehab and persevere like you said and it's a lot of hard work but I think it makes you realize that you thought you worked hard but every time you have an injury like that you realize well you know you gotta work harder. I always thought you should have been given a Masterton trophy. Let's talk about the shot, the slap shot. Four-time NHL All-Star, three times you had the NHL's hardest shot. Uh, clock I was over. undefeated, John, never lost to anybody. There we go. See, you were the Nolan Ryan of slap shots, but with a wooden, sh uh, wooden shaft stick, not like these titanium metal sticks that they use nowadays. So talk about how you developed your slap shot. Well, I was always into going fast and I think that was bad for my insurance when you know I was young, speeding in cars. <laughs> um, but I always wanted to be fast, running, skating. I always, you know, wanted my eyes water, and I wanted to be fast. And I think the combination of being a bigger guy, you know, I was probably 30, 40 pounds heavier than all the guys whenever I was in a fastest skater contest. You know, and then you just combine that big body, moving fast, hitting the puck properly, transferring your weight. You know, getting all my weight off my back foot onto my front foot at the same time I'm hitting the puck. You know, that's a big part of shooting hard. And, you know, you're not on your back foot and you're not too far on your front foot. It's all timing. And I think transferring that weight forward and being able to skate fast and timing it all in that, in that little moment in time for the hardest shot contest is probably why I shot hard because you look at all the guys that win the hardest shot ever even after my it was always me and Al McInnes it was me and him and now it's you know Shea Weber and Chara and everyone else is tied for last right it's uh, it was kind of the same then and uh bigger guys right that you know can skate pretty good you know and people don't realize you know even with with Chara you know he might not be the fastest guy but he's fast enough he's competing at the greatest level you know, love the sport, and he's doing pretty good. <laughs> so, you know, you get a big body that can move in the timing of the puck and hitting the puck, and you know, obviously Weber's a good skater, so he's a bigger guy. You know, that's a that's a big component. Great. So we've been joined by Ally Afraidy. I'm John Horgan, Boston Bruins alumni TV. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast. Be sure to visit us at ProHockeyAlumni.org.